Hello, I'm Evan Ball. Welcome to Striking a Chord, an Ernie Ball podcast. Today we have Ilan Rubin on the podcast. Ilan's been in the music business for over 20 years, and somehow he's only 31 years old. He's the drummer in both Nine Inch Nails and Angels and Airwaves. He played drums in Paramore, and he also has his own band that he fronts, The New Regime. While Ilan Rubin is best known for being a drummer, he actually plays everything and everything well, from guitar to keyboards to singing to cello, as it turns out. As he'll explain, Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails paid for him to learn cello. So as you listen, it will become very clear how versatile and valuable Elon is as a bandmate. In this episode, we'll talk about the unique dynamics of his collaboration with Tom DeLonge, singer and guitarist of Angels and Airwaves, and of course, before that, Blank-182. This leads us to a brief and interesting sidebar where we talk about UFOs and more. And if you're in a band, we talk a lot about the music business today in the second half of the podcast. Elon has a lot of insight there to impart. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Elon Rubin. Elon Rubin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, so you're known for getting a, a pretty early start in the music business. At 11, you're uh, playing Warp Tour and Woodstock. So I'm wondering, given given that you were a kid, were you able to process how how cool and unusual this was, or did it just kind of seem like the normal progression of learning an instrument? You practice for a couple of years and you play big festivals. A, a bit of both. Okay. And I say that because it was a natural thing that happened for me, getting into an instrument, loving the instrument, and practicing and joining my older brother's high school band at the time. So that all just felt like a very natural progression. But I did notice or, or realize that it was different when I was in you know, third, fourth, fifth grade and yeah. occasionally having to leave to go play a show or do an interview or very odd things that at the time I realized weren't exactly normal per se. But yeah. it, was all, it was all very fun and, like I said, natural. How much older was your brother? Two brothers or one brother? I have two brothers. Okay. So my oldest... Brother Aaron and I are eight years apart, and Danny's the middle brother. We're five years apart, so I'm the youngest of three. Okay. So did they both play? Yeah. Okay. Both played. They must have realized how cool and unusual it was. I think so. Yeah. I think so, yeah. <laughs> and having extremely supportive parents really helped with all that, and th I think that also made it even more fluid for me, the fact that there was no resistance on any front. It was just, this is what's happening, this is what we're trying to do, and we're doing it. Yeah. There definitely seems to be a theme emerging with interviews I've done for this podcast where mm -hmm. there's there's an older sibling or maybe a parent that has an instrument, maybe just tinkers with it, but it's mm -hmm. there. The youngster comes along and just takes to it and, and never looks back. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what it was. My dad was a drummer when he was in high school, but then he made the decision through college to be an adult and get his master's degree and do business and support a family. So he went that route, but he still ha uh, hung on to his drums. So having two older brothers who had already had their curiosities peaked with the drums in the garage, started dabbling. And I think it was through watching them play that I decided, I can probably do that too. Not to put you in a weird position, but was it apparent that you had uh, maybe more natural ability than other family members? Or? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, all But right. they would admit to that too. Okay, good, yeah. In fact, the, the running joke is that they started with drums, so when I picked up drums, they moved to guitar and bass, and then I picked up guitar and bass. You just and, kept chasing them. And then my older brother went into management, so yeah. that's, that's, the, that's the story there. 
So did you kind of cut your teeth on the warp Tour scene and, and that 90s punk? Honestly, no. Okay. It was never my thing musically. It was more so what was going on at the time. Uh, but like I said, I was 9, 10, 11, 12 years old at the time. So what I was raised on was pretty much what I still love to this day, which is more classic rock. You know, if we're talking Beatles, Led Zeppelin, that sort of thing. That was the music of my parents' generation. And I didn't have a rebellious bone in my body where I was like, no, I'm going to listen to my own music. Yeah. Okay. My dad, when I started playing, said, okay, if you're going to play, I want you to listen to this. Got me Led Zeppelin 1. And to to this day, my absolute lifelong favorite. So that's more what I was into. Um, that's not taking away from the great experience it was playing on Warp Tour and getting to meet a whole variety of people and... That was really my first experience traveling yeah. and, you know, more than just Orange County, L.A., Phoenix, things that are easily drivable. Did you play with no effects? I thought I read that. I it did. Would've... Man, you're digging up some old skeletons, yeah. aren't you? <laughs> um, I did. So having played on uh, quite a few shows spread out through two or three years on that tour, um, I got to know Eric from no effects. And there was a time, this is the last time I played Warp Tour, I think, but there was a time where he had to leave for something. It could have been a family emergency or something that he had to attend. And he basically went around asking all, all the drummers that he knew if they could each kind of learn two songs. And that way we could all partake in the set and they wouldn't have to miss the show. Oh, so wow. I learned the two songs and played them. And How old I, were you? Um, I had to be 13, I'd imagine. Wow. 13, yeah. Okay, so you, were already, you already knew how to play all that fast punk stuff. Yeah, you, yeah. yeah. which is funny because it's a skill that I have and Tom finds it, Tom DeLong yeah. finds it very odd because he knows it's not my kind of music, but it's very much his type of music. So yeah. when I'll play that really fast punk beat or whatever it is, yeah. it always makes him laugh because he doesn't expect it from me. Right. But like I said, I, I grew up having to know that sort of thing because of the music at the time. Yeah. Did you listen to Blink at all back then? I did listen to Travis when I was first, when I first heard of him pretty much enema of the state so i did listen to that album yeah. and i was very impressed with his drumming i know that sounds ridiculous i was 10 and i was impressed or whatever it was but um aaron my oldest brother passed that down to me i was like you should listen to this drummer he's really really good yeah because like i said my brothers were more into that sort of scene but he um brought something interesting to that band from from a drummer's perspective so as a yeah. young kid i really learned all of that and it was not much later on that somebody saw me on the Warp Tour. I think it was, this was in 2000. Okay. Saw me on the Warp Tour. And he noticed these um, two parental-looking figures in the audience. And he put it together. They were my parents. So he worked with Blink at the time and asked my mom. Wow. Hey, what band were you playing with? Oh, uh, this is the very first band. I don't even okay. like talking about it. It's okay. just one of those things. <laughs> we'll leave it there. Yeah. Okay. Well, you, you know, the, high, the first high school band, you know. I had to be 11 because this was 2011 and a half, yeah, 12 yeah. years old at the most. But okay. um, so this gentleman went up to my mom and confirmed that she was my mother and said, hey, do you know if your son would be interested in taking lessons from Travis Barker? Do you know who that is? And my mom knew who that was. And she didn't know whether to take it seriously or not, but she talked to my dad about it and passed on the number that this gentleman had passed on to her and he called and it was legitimate and a couple of weeks later I had my first lesson with Travis. Wow, that's so crazy. Very, very yeah. small world and great opportunity. Which by the way, the when we talk about anything that's from a, that period of time, 
you have to remember that it's really bizarre to me because it's like I'm 31 now. So that's like two thirds of my life ago. And not only from being just a fuzzy memory, because I don't really remember it too vividly. I mean, there are obviously things that will always stand out, but it's just like, who was that person? You know, that's like a 10 year old kid or a 12 year old kid. And it's not until like mid teens, late teens, where I start feeling like a preliminary version of myself. You know what I mean? Like I can relate to that person yeah. mid to late teens, whereas the super young drummer, I'm like, who? That is a long time ago. That, that's really you know? young. I mean, to be in and that don't scene, get me wrong. Yeah. I I appreciate it. I yeah. loved it. I have fond memories of it. But it's just a weird because it's something that people bring up often, and I always kind of like, oof, man, we're going back there. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it is noteworthy though. Yeah. You know, wow. you got such an early start. Yeah, and you for being 31 and doing having your resume. That's well, thank that's you. impressive. Yeah. Uh, so we've been talking about drums a lot, but you yeah. also play guitar, you play piano, keyboards, and yeah. in your band, The New Regime, you play everything. Everything so, and sing, yeah. So um, maybe maybe tell us, what are your main instruments as far as what you're most proficient in? Well, drums are my first instrument. Um, and I started about seven and a half, eight years old. But as I said earlier, when I progressed at the drums, my brothers moved on to other instruments, bass and guitar, and I had access to those instruments. So it was always a sort of identical progression of, oh, let me try playing that. And then when I realized I could and I learned a couple of things and I practiced those things, that obsessive fever of just wanting to learn more and play more happened with every instrument, happened with the guitar, bass, piano, singing, so on and so forth. That has been the majority of my life. So I started taking guitar extremely seriously about 13 years old really playing which is a i think it's a common time where you know you're in middle school and starting yeah. high school that is the time where people start really getting their instruments and staying in their bedroom for a long time i was just really fortunate to have already done that for five years mm-hmm. five six years as a drummer so i kind of already knew the the rewards you could attain by sitting down and just practicing you know so that's yeah. what happened and then obviously if you can play the guitar that's somewhat translates to the bass but um i also wanted to make sure that i played the bass like a bass player so i had I had my favorites you know jack bruce john paul jones paul mccartney and i really took that seriously as well but um by 15 or 16 was the sort of last piece of the the main musical puzzle in terms of the piano because i feel like if you play guitar and piano you have a great grasp of melody harmony chords progressions that sort of thing if you play drums bass you obviously have a great sense of rhythm or a grasp of rhythm but then you put all these things together and it was at that time when i was about 18 years old where i thought if i can do all these things but i can't sing what's the point so i forced myself to sing so that i wouldn't be stuck in that position of writing songs musically and then having you know missing the the glue that makes a song a song which is the melody and vocals lyrics yeah did you sing just casually before that did you already know you could sing you just didn't i knew i had pitch but the thing with singing that was a harsh reality is that it's the one thing i'm i'm a fairly shy person um and i was much more so as a kid you can be shy and play the drums or play the guitar and play the bass but you cannot be shy and sing because you can hear it and there's nothing, it's not like, okay, I'm shy, but I have to hit this G chord. You can look at it and you can hit it and be like, okay, hit that G. 
But if you're nervous and you're thinking about singing, it's just it's a it's a huge head game. Right. You got to go know? for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was a very the most valuable lesson that I yeah. had to learn. But um, I love doing it. Interesting. Yeah, I wondered how, how you become proficient in so many instruments, because I feel like you need to have that phase where you're passionate and sort of obsessive a little bit rather mm. than just casually tinkering simultaneously with all of them. So do you feel like you did have a, a chapter where you really got heavy into guitar? And uh, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I had years of obsessing at the piano, years of obsessing at the guitar, bass, so on and so forth. Wow. I mean, wow. I mean really, it's all I've ever done. Yeah. You know? It's, yeah, it's, you fit in a lot. But that's also, if, I, if I'm correct, how you landed the job as a drummer for Nine Inch Nails and Angels and Airwaves was, was having this wide musical ability. Mm-hmm. Is that- that's true. Yeah, I mean, okay, let's talk about Nine Inch Nails specifically. I know it was a... Uh, initially looked at as a maybe a perk or an advantage okay he's a good drummer but maybe he can do little bits and pieces here and there i love a challenge but anything trent threw at me i ran towards i'd love doing it and you know it's one thing to be able to say hey i do x y and z i play piano i play this and that but it's one thing to actually do it in front of a room and then somebody can really assess your skill levels and your talents whatever it may be so once Trent saw that I was a good pianist, a good bass player, a good guitar player, whatever it was, he then began taking advantage of that. And it was, I love it because there are some set lists with Nine Inch Nails where I'm only at the drums for about 60 to 75% of it, where I'm running around to either the piano, playing bass on a few songs, playing guitar on a few songs. Um, he's thrown the cello at me. I'm not a cellist by any means, but like I said, I love taking the challenge. So he yeah. came up to me, he's like, hey, um, do you play cello? And my response was not yet. Yeah. He's like, well, if you want to try, there are a couple songs that I think would be cool to have it on. So I'm willing to get you lessons if you want to, if you think you can do it. So I said, absolutely. I took lessons, I think every Thursday after rehearsals or whatever, somebody would come by and teach me. And there were two or three songs, even up until the last tour, that I would play cello on. And it yeah. was a lot of fun. Wow. But um, I also had a great time. This is late 2013, early 2014. We had a a very expanded lineup of Nine Inch Nails where we had um, backup singers and Pino Palladino was on bass. He had done some playing on the Hesitation Marks album. But he that lineup was just for one tour. It was for the Tension Tour. But come the following year where the band had once again sort of whittled down to a four or five piece you then have to rearrange parts and redistribute parts so Trent approached me and said do you think you can play Pino's bass lines and I said yes now Pino is on another level to everybody on the planet so I'm not saying I'm not comparing myself in any way but it was a great opportunity and so much fun to be able to play his bass lines live on those songs. Yeah. Especially when it would be going from playing something super aggressive like March of the Pigs and then say getting off the drums and playing all time low, which is super funky and laid back. So I just had such a great time. And Nine Inch Nails has been the only band that I've ever been able to really showcase what I do. Um, aside from the new regime, obviously, which but that's my own. And then there are some similarities in terms of the 
multi-instrumentalist aspect with angels where on this last tour I'd play acoustic guitar at the front of the stage for a song or keyboards way back when, seven, eight years ago, the time we played before this last run. But uh, I love doing that. It just kind of keeps everything more fresh and more exciting for me. Yeah, Angels and Airwaves, you were actually brought in to be part of the, the writing process. Correct? That's true, yeah. yeah. So is is it basically, from what I gather, Tom DeLong will come with, with some idea, mm-hmm. you'll take it, mess with it, and maybe move it in a direction that it wouldn't be moved in if he were writing solo? Yeah, I mean, him and I had to arrive at a way to work together because we look at music as almost... Even though music is music, it's like two different languages to Tom and I. He's on one side of the spectrum and I'm on the other side of the spectrum. Okay. And it's not, I mean, literally, if you play a minor chord to him or a seventh chord to him, it sounds wrong. He is just like hard tuned for major, catchy, poppy. That's that's how he functions. And he's yeah. been immensely successful with it. Yeah. And I commend him. To me, there's nothing more beautiful than a minor chord, right? I mean, just to put it as black and white as can be. But um, I also like to sort of study music and I like to experiment and and do all these different things. So there was a huge speed bump, more like a brick wall when we started trying to write together. Oh, really? Where it was like, hey, I've got these chords. What do you think? And not that these chords were bizarre by any means or these riffs were difficult or complex because I don't like things that are weird or complex or odd for the sake of it. Yeah, you know everything has its place, but to him, it was very weird and complex and odd, which I found I was baffled by. You know, and it just wasn't computing; it wasn't inspiring him to write a melody to it. So, long story kind of short, he would then write music. I would take his tracks, sometimes strip all of the chords beneath them, leave his melody. And then that would be the way where he could look at the same piece of music from a different perspective. Be like, oh, that's my melody that I like. It's catchy. It's cool. But I never would have thought about those chords and I like them. And now we have co-written something. But it's not co-written in the sense of let's jam it out or yeah, let's, let's pick, each, let's pick okay. each other's ideas and see which so you keep one. Keep his melody, maybe sneak a few minor chords in there. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And it doesn't have to be that. Per se, it's just what's unbelievable to me is that Tom can write a hundred songs with the same chords, but not realize that they're the same chords. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. I mean, people love his music and all the power to him, but he's just not looking at it in the sense of, hmm, I've used those chords before. I'm going to try something else. He'll just be like, here's a new song. And I can say, but you did that in this song and that song and the other. And it, literally on his face, you can realize that he didn't know that. Wow. You know, yeah. he's just, it, it's a, he writes from a different place. So is he, is he writing um, melodies concurrently with his chords? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, he can take CGF farther than probably anybody on the planet. Yeah. And yeah. not realize that it's CGF, you know, but, um, that's kind of cool, though, because it, it is. You don't have to. You're not worried about it. You're just kind of following it, it your is. heart, I guess. It is, but it's funny when you walk into a room, and obviously this is a, a while ago now. But when you walk into a room, you're like, "Here's the new song. Check it out." And I'm like, <laughs> "Wait, is this the new one? What, what, yeah. you, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know?" Yeah. And we had some arguments, but 
we're both very proud of what became the Dreamwalker because that was mm-hmm. the first, honestly, the only full length album that we've done as just him and I being the two writers. And that came out in 2014. We never toured on it. So these last two tours that we did to close out 2019 were the first time we'd played these songs, which were five years old, but they didn't feel that old because we'd never played them live before. Yeah, You know, at that time I was touring a lot with Nine Inch Nails. He was touring a lot with Blink. And it was all a matter of when our schedules would coincide with being home in San Diego. Given the, the wide range of creative projects he does from... Mm-hmm novels to ufo documentaries i I would just speculate that he's a guy who always has a million ideas going at once yes is it is it difficult to harness that energy or is it just you have to learn how to just dissipate it because it keeps coming from him okay which is great and the guy is so never a lack of ideas never yeah whether it's movie ideas like you said books music yeah and then even within these ideas he's got to come up with music which um my brother Aaron's been involved with. So my brother who I man- mentioned as my manager is also involved in the Angels world because he uh, engineers, mixes most of the music and produces all of it, at least since my involvement with the band. And they together co-write the music for his show that's on the History Channel. So there's oh, really? just so many outlets with music alone aside from books and movies and so what's that's the unidentified exactly okay yeah full so they do the music for that oh interesting okay so there's so many things now as you can imagine i I wouldn't say it's hard to deal with because everything he does does not affect me i mean the guy can have a million ideas and he's he should pursue them all but um as you can imagine having that much on the mind it can be difficult to schedule things or figure sure. things out when it yeah. is and especially it's become a little more difficult since I moved to LA but we managed to yeah write the songs and record them and what's well, it's do what a, we need it's to impressive do. how he's what he's been able to orchestrate as far as investigating UFOs and government cover cover ups I yeah mean, oh, no, it's it's I, do you ever have conversations about that with him it's my favorite thing okay that, that Tom does because his his alien knowledge in theorizing and whatever you want to call it is is fascinating I mean, the the guy sounds insane, but given the context that he has and the stuff that he has shown the public yeah. and him being verified by the, the Navy in terms of that. Did you hear about that? I, I've seen the first couple episodes. Well, yeah. a few the, months ago. Well, no, no, let's, let's take it back maybe a, a year and a half or so, okay. he released some UFO footage through his company to the Stars Academy. Yeah. And some people believed it. Other people are like, this guy's nuts. Uh, like Joe Rogan, for example, did not buy any of it. Okay. And I think he should apologize to Tom because he was kind of being a dick to him on a show. Was and Tom on the show? Tom was on the okay. show. But here's what's funny. The same video footage is brought out by the U.S. Navy saying these are real. And that kind of just verified his claims. And so Tom had him in advance. Yeah. Okay. I don't know how he had, I don't know if he had the rights to it or whatever it was, but he brought these out and said, these are real. Yeah. And like I said, you had your believers, you had your non-believers, but amongst all that chatter and argument, out comes the U.S. Navy saying that these are real videos. We don't know what those things are. We're not saying they're aliens. We're saying they are UFOs. We don't know what they are. So is that separate from the footage in the documentary that has the, the tic-tac shaped? Um, I, that sounds about right. Okay. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. So how persuaded are you? Just to I, get off topic for a second. Oh, we can. Hey, man, I have all day. I I've never been a doubter, to be honest with you, just because I find it impossible that we are the only things in existence. It just can't be. Considering how big the universe is and how it's constantly expanding, it is, in my opinion, pretty stupid to think that we're the only things out here. So I've never been a doubter. But these things go to many, many levels. I mean, for example, anytime he talks to me about something, I'll go online and see what I can find about it. And not too long ago, I stumbled across some Edward Snowden leaked file that Forbes put out. So seem to be very credible places to be reading this sort of thing, saying that this tall race of aliens were helping the Germans during World War II. And this is a leaked... Wait, uh, Forbes put that out? Yeah. And years ago. Yeah. You find it and it's there. And it's like, now if I'm on the couch with Tom in between takes and he tells me the story, I'm going to be like, what is wrong with you? Like, you have to be joking me. <laughs> yeah. But then you go do your own little bit of digging and you're like, if, I mean, why is Forbes putting this out? And yeah. This, this super wanted guy who's leaking highly classified documents. This is what he's putting out there. It's just, there's so many pieces yeah. that... Whether you believe it or not, it's fascinating. And that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. I just find it all incredible. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely not in that world. But hey, I know but, plenty about Star Wars. So if it's real, then great. I mean, I'll, I'll learn about the aliens. The documentaries are yeah. compelling. I love them. I yeah. but, but I'm still cautious. You know, that, that Flat Earth documentary is kind of compelling. Or not compelling, but illuminating. You could kind of see how someone could believe it if they were only exposed to those YouTube propaganda videos and not real information. Just saying information can be presented in manipulative ways. You know, as the the percentage of flat earthers increases, I think global intelligence is diminishing almost daily. Yeah, I think people have always been susceptible to, to buying into things, but now it's just at your fingertips. I mean, stupidity is a dime a dozen these days, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it always has been. It's just more apparent because you can know what everybody's doing at any given time. Yeah. Well, but people can easily produce these things and put them on YouTube now. Yeah. So so you and, can find your people easier. And, yeah, but that's the scary thing too, whereas at a time, and look, I can't talk like, oh, in the old days, because I was born in 1988. You know, the, the, I pretty <laughs> much had the internet for most of my life. Yeah. You know, I, so I can't, I'm not talking from my high horse here, but... Let's say in the 70s or 80s, you wanted to do your research. You had to go find obscure books and talk to people and whatever sort of printed media you could find, that's how you got this stuff. But now you can find whatever you want and specifically what you're looking for, whether it's true or not. You can find, quote unquote, evidence to back up any theory right. that you want. You and can confirm what you already believe very exactly. easily. Yeah. And it's scary because somebody can go, oh, I know this because I saw it. It's yeah. like, but who's your source? What's this person's source? And it's crazy because, I don't know, people also get lazier. It's easier to find information. There's no credibility to a ton of it. Well, and, and so much gets wrapped into your identity and then it's it's sort of unshakable after it's part of exactly. you. Yeah, you're very, yeah. very right. Anyway. So guitar yeah. strings, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These what, Ernie Ball what, mic cables what, um, are great, by the way. Aren't they? Everybody should get these. Yeah, listen to that clarity. Yeah, it's stunning. Uh, what gauge and type of Ernie Ball strings do you play? So I went to the Paradigm line, uh, 11s. Before I was kind of doing the mix and match thing to just try it out, 
I wasn't quite in the like heavy bottom slinky top range. Like I wasn't playing a 52 on the E or anything. Yeah. But I kind of stumbled across just 50, 40, 30, then 18, 14, 11 or whatever it was. Because I do like to bend on the high strings and the low strings. Right. But um, like I said, it's not something I'm super picky about. I just yeah. can't have that s- something super slinky. And since I tune to E flat, I need that little bit of extra tension. Right. And um, we can't leave out acoustics because I've done a fair bit of experimenting right. there. I like that. Yeah. I'm using paradigms on the acoustics as well. Okay. Now, part of that comes from two places. They last a long time. They sound great. And jumping off the last a long time, that means I don't have to change them as often. Sure. So Always nice. Which is great. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's take a quick break, then come back and talk more about your various bands, Nine Inch Nails, Angels and Airwaves, and The New Regime. Today's episode is brought to you by the Ernie Ball Axis Capo, featuring a dual radius design that conforms to both curved and flat fretboards, ensuring buzz-free play. Quick single-handed operation allows for fast and accurate key changes. Available in four finishes, get your Ernie Ball Axis Capo at your favorite guitar store today. Check out the show notes for more details. With your, the different bands you're in, do you have to establish some sort of pecking order in case of uh, scheduling conflicts? That's a really good question. Um, it's something that gives me underlying anxiety constantly. Yeah. All right. Just because everyone is on a different schedule, you know, and... It's really tough because, I mean, look, these are good problems. I, I don't want anyone to listen to this and be like, oh, right. poor guy, he has three <laughs> bands that he has to tour with. Uh, it's not that at all. It's just I want to do everything that I possibly can. And what's easiest to deal with, of course, is Nine Inch Nails. And the reason why I say that is because I've never encountered someone as focused as Trent and just so on the ball with whatever he, it is that he's doing. And, you know, not to compare the two, but let's say Trent with film scoring, which he's done more and more and more of for almost 10 years now, it's going to be close to, I mean, he will focus on that and score a ton of movies and uh, documentaries, whatever it may be. And that's where his focus is. And then he goes, okay, time for nine inch nails. And I get that heads up a year in advance, at least I can plan what's going on. And then with Tom, for example, you get this, we haven't played in seven years, but I want a tour. What are you doing? What are you doing in a year? And it's like, <laughs> uh, I don't know what I'm doing in a year because I know that Trent wants to tour. I just signed a deal for the new regime and I'm putting out music. My album's already done. And it's like, well, I really want you to do it. So how do we make this work? It's like, I really want to do it too. I'm just, you know, I have so many months in the year. I don't want to say no to anybody, honestly. And I have to try to make it work. So this year, for example, I don't know if you knew this, but the first tour Angels had done in seven years and the new regime supported that entire tour. Right. Because I had the first new music out in a couple of years out. Yeah, so that's and, a good solution to the yeah, pecking order. Yeah, yeah, and it's like I will put in more work than I'm physically capable of just to make it work. I mean, if I had to play with three bands and I, I would do it because I want to and that's just the way I'm wired. And honestly, it's it was incredible fun. I'd never felt more energetic in my life. And was it pretty good... Uh, melding of fans with the two bands? It was. And to be honest, I was slightly worried about it just because the new regime music is very different to Angels and Airwaves. And there's a fairly fanatical fan base with Angels. So I wasn't sure how it was going to go. To my relief, it went extremely well. 
venues were full every single night and I was direct support. So I would literally do my thing, get off stage. They would do changeover. I'd take off my jacket, take off my boots because I don't play drums with boots on or shoes and just walk right back out on stage. Yeah. Be out there for an hour and 20 minutes or so. So yeah. I, I loved it. Nice. Yeah. Are there any differences that, that come to mind between the fans of your different bands? Like maybe demographics or intensity? Between Angels and Airwaves and Nine Inch Nails, I mean, it's two different types of very rabid fans. Right. You know, obviously Nine Inch Nails has been around that much longer and the fans have that much more music and just greater parts of their lives that have been invested into this thing, you know, but... Um, Older crowd though. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's uh, as a whole, I'd say yes, but you'd be very surprised in both age directions with both bands because it's really all over the place, you know, especially when you're playing um, venues two or three nights in a row or you're playing festivals or it's a very, very different fan base, you know, teens to whatever you want to call it. Same thing with, with angels. I mean, we've been doing meet and greets, for example, before the shows. And you can have teenagers who are like, I grew up listening to you, Tom. It's I've, my whole life has been you. And then you can have people who are 15, 20 years older than Tom, who are just like, I found your band. I really love it. And thank you guys for doing this. So it's, yeah. it's really all over the place. Are there a lot of Blink-182 fans? Is that the core of it, do you think? At the core, yes. But there are so many people who either only like Angels and Airwaves or just love everything in the the DeLong yeah. universe. I mean, there are people who literally like roll up their shirt and it's every band he's been in tattooed on them. Seriously. Wow. wow. Yeah. Any other good uh, overzealous fan stories come to mind? I mean, there are a handful of fans with, with either band that you can, doesn't matter where you are, they're there. And it's unbelievable commitment. But um, like every show, no matter where it is. Yeah. Wow. Or most of them. And with Nine Inch Nails, it's crazier where you could play in Tokyo and four days later you're in Paris and really? that person is there and you can spot them. It's nuts. It's amazing. But yeah. like, wow. So know. they're wealthy individuals? I have not done any, you know. <laughs> it's a mystery. I didn't hire a PI. I don't really know. Yeah. But just people who love it that much. But there was this individual, his name was Lee. Super cool, laid back guy. Came to most of the meet and I think he went to a meet and greet to every city that he was in for a show. But yeah. he came up to me numerous times with the first or second or third time we had like a proper conversation. He's like, hey, I was at a bookstore and I know you love the Beatles. So I just want to give this to you as a thank you for doing these shows and everything. And I'm like, what a good guy. I don't know if that goes under the overzealous category, but just an awesome encounter with yeah. a good dude who's really loves the music. That's cool. Yeah. All right. All right, so with the new regime, you're recording every layer. So I'm wondering, do you record guitars to a click first and then overdub drums, or what's the basic order of layering? I've kind of changed things around in terms of how I record them. Before, with my first recordings, I would record the drums to a click and just play the song from memory. Really? And then track okay. everything on top of that. And that's fine. But what I really started enjoying for the past couple of years is taking the tracks from the demoing phase, kind of bouncing them down to just something that you can play along to, and then redoing the drums, and then scrapping everything. That way you're at least still playing to music, and yeah. that may add to some of the feel or some of the energy. Yeah. Well, but the demos have 
electronic drums or V drums or? Well, lately, um, so for those listening, we're in my little studio that I've set up at home. And what I've done is I have this little Roland kit, which is a TD-17. Um, it's not super expensive. It's kind of the intermediate sort of V drum, but it does a great job. And I basically go USB out of the interface straight into the computer or to a hub or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I trigger fantastic samples. I've been using Superior Drummer 3. And that way I'm still playing and it sounds like me. It feels like me. It's obviously not the most fun to you know hit mesh pads, but they do a phenomenal job of registering the playing. So when I'm actually done playing and I'm listening, I'm like, that sounds like me. And I'm pleased because I hate programming to sound realistic. That's yeah, way yeah. more of a pain in the ass than it's worth, you know? But yeah. then you don't want to listen to a demo that sounds robotic and doesn't have any soul or feel to it. Yeah. So this has been the best thing for my writing process. So as so you can, you can see, use basically the same file and go in and put real drums over it for the, for the final version. Yeah. So what yeah. I would do is let's say I've recorded a demo where I have my drum track, bass guitar tracks, whatever it is. I can then go to the studio, wipe the drums, play to a click because I record everything to a click. And so I can just be playing to the guitars in the click track. Once I have my drum take and I know that's it, I'll erase everything else or you know put everything else away and then rebuild the track one at a time. Yeah. So everything that I have in here is either going into a USB hub or into the interface. So I can literally just, without having to leave my chair, go from drums, guitar, bass, piano, do stuff on the computer since so I have the MIDI controllers beneath the desk. And then when I'm ready, I just stand up and sing and I can have something done in a day. Hey, is it difficult to hand over the drums when you play live because you know exactly how you want to play it on the new regime? It's, it's not as difficult as you'd think. Okay. Because I'm not, I'm not the kind of guy who's like, this is the way I played it. This is the way you need to play it. These are the fills. I could give a shit about fills. What's important to me is the feel, the energy and the beats. The beats are written very specifically. I mean, the feel comes from the patterns that I chose to use for the song. So beats are something that have to be note for note. But in terms of fills, if I do something fancy on a song, or I don't care. As long as it feels good live yeah, yeah. and it comes across. Especially with my drummer that I have now, his name's Rob Ketchum. He does a lot of the high vocals, which has been a blessing for me because... I like to layer harmonies a lot, but as a three-piece band, you know, you're lucky to get yeah. two singers, let yeah. alone three. So I've really been able to take advantage of the three-piece really to its fullest extent, I feel. Let's talk about the music business today a little bit. Oof. Does it yeah. <laughs> I'm curious. Does it make sense for a band to have a no. goal of <laughs> don't have a band? <laughs> Sorry. Just stop. Does it make sense for a band to have a goal of getting signed by a record label? Um, I'm gonna go with no. Okay. The thing that's difficult is, as the new regime, for example, I was completely independent for my first few releases. And I was sick and tired of it because it was like, I'm putting in all this effort to write and record everything, tour everything. And I felt like everybody who knew about the new regime was enjoying it, loving the progression of the music. But the thing that kept really irritating me even though people were saying, I love this, I, this is my new favorite song by you, or whatever it is, something complimentary. What was driving me nuts was that it was the same people. And I didn't feel like 
I was reaching new people, even with touring, because what happens with touring, everything is a, is a dual-edged sword, right? You can go, okay, you're touring, you're playing in front of people. But I feel like these days, unless you're very similar to the band who you're playing with, or if you're in a particular scene or something, a lot of the bands who I opened up for or supported, we were not in the same musical world. And the bigger the band you tour with or the band who has a more fanatical fan base, they are there for that band. And you as the opener or the support act are more times than not in the way of seeing of them seeing the band they came for. The best shows that I felt greatest response from the crowd, aside from this, this Angels run, were opening up for Muse a couple times. And we did one show with the Killers in San Diego. And... It just depends on the types of fan base and the, the demographics you're looking at, which is stuff you don't want to think about. You want to just go out and play in front of people and hope that they enjoy it. So it's tough because you think, okay, how do I get my music out there? I tour, I, I put it out there. Hey, you can put it on YouTube or SoundCloud or iTunes and anyone can listen to it. But a hundred million people have the same idea and are doing the exact same thing, which then makes it that much more difficult to kind of break through to the top. And I think there are a lot of phases and trends with what labels are looking for because I, none of them are forward thinking. It's just a fact. I mean, what people have stumbled into now because everything is so data and analytics driven is that they have the ability to say, who is this band? How many followers do they have on their social media platforms? And how many streams do they have on this? Whoa, they have a lot of streams and I never heard on, uh, about them. Maybe we should maybe we should sign them because they're already doing well. And nine times out of 10, I'd say that's how people get signed these days. By already doing well yeah. yourself and then making them feel like they have a pretty safe investment and that you are a safe bet that they don't have to work as hard on if you were a band that nobody had ever heard of. And what's a shame about that is that with everything being so analytics driven, you are really functioning based on what numbers are telling you. And I'm not saying that the business is not important. What I'm saying is that the investment in both money and time are important. So whereas you could have had a band in the 70s or 80s or 90s who didn't do anything on their first album, didn't do anything on their second album, started making a dent on their third album, and the fourth was their huge breakout, you're not going to get to a fourth album these days if you're not performing on your first one. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. So that sort of gut instinct of anonymous A&R guys saying, oh, I love this band. You know what? People don't get it right now, but it's going to happen. I, this is it. That doesn't happen. You know, it's holy shit. Who's this girl who has a hundred thousand streams? We can probably get that to a hundred million streams if we play our cards right. You know, I'm I'm throwing out arbitrary numbers, but mm -hmm. you get what I'm saying. Yeah. And I feel like that is a problem. And I think genre is a huge issue because I think it's getting better. But what I mean by genre being an issue is this bullshit about oh, rock isn't in right now, or this isn't in right now. This is what we're looking for. That's what we're looking for. That is so stupid because the second you have the tides change and somebody signed that one rock band or that one 
folk actor, Americana band who had that breakout single, what does everybody do? Everybody tries to find the next closest thing they can to that breakout artist. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. It's not forward thinking. It's immensely short-sighted. And what I find ir- ironic about the short-sightedness is that so many of these labels are still living off of phenomenal back catalogs that continue to sell. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's tough. Yeah, it seems like it's so much more about individual stars rather than bands now, at mm-hmm. least at the the, the top tier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even the big bands or the singer gets separated and elevated and collaborates with other superstars. Yeah. But, so so what what should a band strive for? What what would be considered success for a band today? I mean, t- touring and, and supporting yourself? Supporting yourself, I would have to say, is the factor. I mean, of course, you can go you can go a lot more spiritual about it and be like, hey, man, if you're happy, cool. Yeah. But everyone needs to live and everyone needs to support themselves to live. So I think that would be the most... Um, and is touring the way to do that? Ah, it's tough. I mean, that that requires the most sweat equity because you're in debt, you're doing it, you're putting in the time in the hopes that it pays off, but not only pays off, it pays off exponentially. I mean, that's what everybody wants. Right. You're like, you know what? I roughed it for X amount of years. Now... I'm making money and now I'm comfortable and now I can live. You know, that's where I feel an enormous advantage having started so young. But I also had it drilled into me very young that music is work. It's life. It's not just go out there and have fun. Of course, that's the goal. If you're not having fun, don't do it. But at the same time, I was just taught to be smart about it. So be, getting into this young, did you ever have a wild phase, like a child actor? Zero. Or, you, you, Zero. You were I'm always the, very professional. I'm the most boring individual you will ever encounter. <laughs> In fact, probably by this point, you can just see the, the listeners of this podcast slowly <laughs> decline. But honestly, immensely boring. Elon Rubin, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> and it's over. No, no. I also had a... I, I suppose a unique perspective from an early age because, like I said, being nine, ten years old in my brother's high school band with people who are eight years older than me, when they were going through their dabbling phases or whatever it was, and you know, I was, I, I'm sure I came across like a little judgmental prick when I was a kid, but I just saw people kind of acting stupid and not being cool, and I just never had that interest. So when I was in high school and my friends kind of started getting into whatever they were getting into, I didn't judge anybody. I didn't say, you shouldn't do that. I mean, everyone can do whatever the hell they want. Mm-hmm. But in the back of my mind, I was always like, I hope they kind of grow out of this soon. Yeah, and sure. this is me being a 15-year-old saying to myself, I hope my friends grow out of you know being idiots. But yeah. <laughs> And I know that can come across really pretentious or arrogant. But like I said, I had that unique perspective from being so young, hanging around people that when I became that age, I had a very different outlook on life and professionalism. I've always held professionalism to the highest degree and standard, and I, I keep myself to that. I, probably something you'd recommend to, to people today absolutely, who want to get into the business. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, so many people who have luck and success squander so much time and you know, uh, let alone money and whatever, whatever have you, whatever you want. But you, you have to be professional, especially if you, you know, it depends what you're looking for. Because if you're in a band and the band has a vibe and the band is wild and whatever, then as a unit, you guys are doing what you're doing, and 
people may like that. But if you're a if you're trying to get into the session scene and you want to play on other people's recordings or play in other people's bands, if you're not professional, you're done. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. But just like any job. And I think people kind of lose sight of the fact that music can be just that, a job. And if well, you don't people show up, wa- You watch the Motley Crue documentary and go, yeah. oh, okay, that's you how have, you do it. You have four guys who are equally just... Yeah, man, having a great time. And before you know it, one's died twice. You know, you get that wake up call. And most people are not as lucky as Motley Crue. But right. you get what I'm saying. Yeah, you know, yeah. it, it totally depends what you're looking for. But if you're in the session scene and you want to be that, you have to treat it like a job and as professionally as can be, or else you won't get called back. Yeah. So what do you have coming up? You have well, some I albums have, coming out. I do. Yeah. So um, right now, I have some more music from the new regime coming out. My album Heart, Mind, Body, and Soul has been released in quarters. So Heart has been its own four songs, Mind, its own, so on and so forth. So the next two installments will be coming out. Installments, it sounds like an infomercial. But um, yeah, the next one's coming out in a few days. And then the fourth one will be coming out in a couple months from now. Uh, Aside from that, I've been touring with Angels and Airwaves quite a bit. I got home on the 23rd, just before the holidays, and I'm going back out January 13th, I think, and have a short run. There are some other things happening this year. I'm just in that, it's kind of a rough time with for the music industry from like Thanksgiving till about February, where everyone's figuring out what the year's looking like. So there's a lot happening, but none of it has been confirmed or announced yet, so I can't really say much there, but... I'm looking forward to 2020. All right. Yeah. Okay. Was that all right for you guys? I think we did it. Yeah. Okay. All Thank right. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks again for listening to Striking a Chord, a podcast presented by Ernie Ball. Thanks to Elon Rubin for sharing his story and his insights and piquing my interest in aliens. If you'd like to contact us, email strikingaccord at ernieball.com. Anything more specific, Tim, about guitar style? No. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, I think it's just interesting what you're saying. So I notice when you, yeah, you have like that kind of, I don't know the right word, like. Savoir faire? No, it's like <laughs> <laughs> this approach to your melody. Like, okay, when you came up to the factory. Uh. One comment Drew, one of our engineers, had was like, you got, your riffs are really cool. They're not like other people's riffs, but they're still kind of classic, like the way that you were playing these different riffs. So, but like you said, in your live thing, you have all these crazy, like, experimental, modular things going on Mm -hmm. with the riffs and mixing those two things. And so, it's, do you feel like sometimes, yeah, Alice in Chains, like maybe, okay, that's a guitar crowd. Mm-hmm. They'll be like, oh, cool, he's ripping solos. Like, oh, yeah. Cool. yeah. And then, <laughs> but then you might play something a little bit more like K Rock, you know, where you're playing alongside 21 Pilots or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's people are like, I don't know what to do with this. Mm-hmm. Is it because you think it goes a little bit more into the experimental side and you're like trying to find your own voice or you're just sticking to it and you're like, this is what it is. You either get on board and that's that. It's tough. I mean, what you're mentioning right now is a very specific type of show, like a radio show where you have 
Um, or at least that's how I interpret it, maybe just because that's what I had just done. Um, it's always, it can be very difficult just going in front of an audience. They don't know what to expect of you. You don't know what to expect of them. Obviously, you want to perform and bring yourself across the way you want to be seen. But at the same time, you also want to win a crowd over. And it's not just as easy as saying, these are the songs. You got to like them, you know? So, and especially with having a very sort of versatile back catalog of music, because that's just the way I like to write. If if I've written one song that is super riff based in one key, I don't want to do something that sounds similar to that. I've already done it. So I've had the ability to kind of somewhat tailor sets to what I've, to who I'm playing with. But um, yeah, there are times where you can see that it's not going over well and they don't give a shit if you're playing the guitar well. They want a beat. And then when that song comes up that has a beat, that's when it clicks to them. We're like, oh, okay, I understand this. So he, he's got a beat that we like and understand and he's playing guitar on top of it. Now it makes sense, which I know sounds like a really kind of stupid way to explain it, but the crowds and their faces are so telling, <laughs> you know, and you can see what's working and what isn't working. And so yeah. how else do you get exposed to new fans? How, how do you get your music out there? I mean, well, is finding the right band to open up for? That is crucial. Yeah. Absolutely. Now I have a weird sort of, I don't even, I wouldn't, I don't even know if I would call it an advantage per se, but because of my different affiliations with bands, I've been fortunate enough to pull people from those bands. It's very weird to think that I have a lot of Nine Inch Nails fans, a lot of Angels and Airwaves fans, even a lot of Paramore fans from when I did a, their fourth album as a drummer and, you know, a few weeks of touring back in 2013. But I have fans from all these bases, but if I told you, does my music sound like, or if you ask me, does my music sound like Nine Inch Nails, Paramore Angels and Airwaves, I'd say absolutely not. So it's this kind of unique base that I've acquired because of my affiliations. But um, it is really great when, say you get a song Santa playlist, which is a way that, that's the best yeah. way, a very hard way, but the best way to get sort of instant gratification if it's the right playlist. And there was a playlist that I hadn't even heard of. And I was just like, why is this one song of mine have so many listens in comparison to everything else? And I found out that's what it was. What song was it? Do you remember? It was a song called Say What You Will. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's not like it has a ton, but you can see there's a visible difference. Yeah. There was also just the music from a song called This Is A New World, which was on Shameless years ago. But seeing people ask what this is. Oh, I really like this. Or, oh, I heard this on Shameless. Or I had a song years ago on some video game. And people were like, I love this song. Every time the song comes up when I hit a home run, I love it. You know, weird stuff like that. And these are obviously very niche ways of getting music across, but yeah. it's very different. You know, it's and funny now that you say that, say what you will. That's how I first found you guys because uh, Spotify recommended it to me in a mix. Oh, that's good. So it worked. On my, yeah, my <laughs> recommended weekly mix or whatever it was. Well, that's good and, to know. And that song was on there. Awesome. And it stood out, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how you get that if they mm. just get in their algorithm somehow. This, that word, that mysterious algorithm. Yeah. 